thank you for joining us on another episode of Popcorn for Breakfast. As I already have to clear my throat here. <clears throat> right into the mic. With me, as always, your co-host, Kirk. I didn't even notice that you had to clear your throat because I was doing some strange eye experiments. <laughs> uh, I'm not quite sure if I can cross my eyes officially or not. Uh, you'll be the judge, audience, and Cam if I can. Before we're talking about eyes, this movie. You always and take... I, I appreciate the literalness of your interpretation of every film title. It's like, it's like you forget entirely what the movie is about and just go back <laughs> to the title only. You're like, okay, the title of the movie is The Pale Blue Eye. What's it about? Eyes. In yeah. reality, it's not even about eyes at all, really. I, I mean, yeah. kind of. Yeah. Tangentially. You know, I just want to remind myself and ground myself in the writer's shoes. Like, what were they thinking? Like, yes, Star Wars, um, E.T., uh, uh, Harold and Kumar. Uh, I mean, whatever it might be. I, I just need to get a feel for what they were going yeah. through in their process. I like that. And I also feel like it's good to kind of critique a title. I think that titles need to be critiqued because sometimes movies have bad titles. That's just yes. true. Like the title doesn't make sense for the film or the title was basically like chosen by marketing, which that happens a lot more than you guys probably know a lot more than I used to know before I started looking into it. But like a lot of times directors will complain about the title that was chosen for their film because it originally had a different title, but they thought it wouldn't sell and yada, yada, yada. So, right. Like, I like, uh, it. like uh, two famous examples of recent past are live, die, repeat. Yes. <laughs> Instead of and Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah. Instead of Edge of Tomorrow. And, uh, oh, what's the one? What's the crazy long name of Harley Quinn? Birds of Prey. Oh, Birds of Prey and the, oh, what was it? They had the and whole, I remember because when I bought my ticket at the movie theater, they had the whole thing there. The yeah. whole stankin' title. And the Emancipation of Harley Quinn. Yeah, the something Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. That's what it yeah. was. I was like, wild. bruh, come on. Where's the marketing team when you need them? They mess yeah. stuff up when you don't need them, but the, then when you actually do need them to like knock some sense into somebody, they don't do it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but like Ryan Johnson wanted Glass Onion to just be called Glass Onion. He hated that it had to be called a Knives Out Mystery because Netflix is worried that people wouldn't know. Um, they think Which, we're a bunch of idiots, basically. They think we're a bunch of morons. Well, I don't think we are, but I think there are people out there who would not know that it was a, another uh, in the same vein of of uh, Knives Out. I think that that Maybe. is a true. I mean, Netflix doesn't advertise anything ever well, so I'm sure that people yeah. would have been confused. But you know, that's on. I that. mean, I remember uh, you're absolutely right. There was no marketing on Netflix. Let's let's dish on them some more. <laughs> we did earlier this week in our yeah. episode. Um, I mean, when Fear Street, Fear Street dropped, those three, that little trilogy, no news. It was just, it just appeared it just in appeared. my For You. And I'm like, all right, I'll watch this. And I thought it was great. I thought it was fun. But I'm like, no one told me about this. I don't yeah. understand that. They were like posting today their, their like new releases for 2023. And they were tweeting out like the release dates with no graphics, no images, no videos, nothing. Just like hyperlinks. I was like, what? I was like, is there some ancient person running this Twitter account. Like what is happening over here? I could not believe my eyes. Shocking you need posters. You need gifts. You they need, they could buy anybody they wanted who was competent to run their social media strategy and, and advertising implementation. And I guess they just choose not to. So 
Like this movie. <sighs> Who knew that it was, you know, it was in theaters for like a week. And then it was released. I know I know very few people who are talking about this. It stars freaking Christian Bale, dude. Like it's come on. Like that's I'm not wearing hockey pads. The dude doesn't do like that many movies. If you get a Christian Bale murder mystery movie, you need to be, you know, ringing the town the the bell. You need to you know pay the town crier to go out and tell everybody. Like this is absurd. Yes. Um, yes. Anywho, that's the movie we're reviewing this week, The Pale Blue Eye, because we did find out about it because we have way too much time on our hands. And uh, <laughs> so you have to be a lot worse at marketing to slip one past us, Netflix. It's not going to happen. Um, so that's the movie we're reviewing this week. We will be talking spoilers, which is typically how we go about business these days, um, but even more so when it's something that's on Netflix because it something- is something you can watch so accessible yeah so accessible if you haven't watched it but you just want to listen like you want to watch the world burn like some people just want to know the endings of movies before they watch them and decide is it going to be happy is it going to be sad and where am i going to land in that there are some people like that and congratulations to you and then some people don't so we will be spoiling this to the nth degree of every single detail so watch out if you want to watch this or later because this is based off a novel, maybe you maybe you read the novel and you're like, I wonder if the movie's any good. We'll tell you our opinion on that. Right. All right, let's get into it then. Um, I have the 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 task, the the responsibility, the burden, if you will, yeah. of of giving a synopsis of this film. So I'm gonna take a a good old swing at that. It's a bit convoluted, I will just say. So basically. This film is historical fiction, which, man, I've been watching a ton of historical fiction (laughs) recently. It seems like it's like, I I feel like I've said this so many times, Um, which that means that the movie is based on um, or lives in a historical period of time or during a certain period of time where certain things could have happened, but the events that they're actually talking about are mostly made up or partially made up, etc. So in this case, we've got, our main character played by Christian Bale, who is a detective, um, a, f- a former, what do they call him? A former police constable. Um, his name is Augustus Landor, and he has been enlisted by the heads of the U S military Academy at wet at West point to investigate, um, a suicide that occurred or what they believe is a suicide that occurred on West point grounds, um, in which uh, a student died apparently by hanging, but then his heart was cut out of his chest. And so they're like, okay, what's going on here? So they bring him in over the course of uh, the investigation. There are more instances happening. Um, There's reason to believe that homicide is going on. There's reason to believe that there's all sorts of tomfoolery going on with these corpses and with, with potential murders and things like that. And, as he's investigating this and as he's becoming familiar with the, the area and the people and, and, and the, the different people at play, he runs into a cadet at the local bar who happens to be none other than Edgar Allan Poe, the, you know, the most famous poet of all time. Um, so that is basically the basis for this story as he sort of enlists Edgar Allan Poe to help him crack uh, this case, or at least to assist him in the investigation, since he seems to have some information and to be uh, interested in, in the work that Mr. Landor is doing. So it's basically this fictional character, Augustus Landor, solving 
a series of uh, murders with Edgar Allan Poe. And there's lots of allusions to different Poe uh, poems and, and short stories, including the fact that the main character, Augustus Landor, is directly related to Poe's final um, written work, which was called, I believe, Landor's uh, Cottage or something like that. Yeah, so, and, that they, is and correct. they refer to him as a cottage man at multiple times during this. So, there are lots of ties, as you would imagine. Um, it's kind of an interesting, interesting thesis, and it's based off of a, a novel that was pretty popular. So, that's what we're getting into today. Anything else, Kirk? Um, I mean, I really thought it was uh, quite fascinating when Christian Bale started interrogating Henry Melling and then yeah. he asked him, he said, are you a wizard? I've seen you do magic spells before yes. and eat all the different chocolates. Yeah. And then he slammed <laughs> his... <laughs> I, I, I was about to start my own bit and I didn't even let you finish yours. I don't even, I don't even get your bit. What is the chocolates? I know that Harry Melling is Dudley Dursley from, from Harry Potter, okay, which... There you go. Harry Melling, the other co-star of this movie, is Dudley Dursley. But where does the chocolate come from? That's the bit. They sometimes have chocolate. Who? In Harry Potter. Do well, they? He was he was a larger boy when he yes. was on a, a child, and now he's like 10 pounds. Now he's very he's very <laughs> slender, probably. Yeah. I, that's... And I didn't know where to go. <laughs> was so bad uh, oh, uh, i was like i was trying to make sense of your bit and then i was like what do i do do i bail him out do i <laughs> i just <laughs> you know yeah kirk i liked that part too wink that was a good, that was a good part. And he pulled his wand out and he said for harry <laughs> he wasn't even a wizard in those movies anyway he was my, a wizard. Can I say what my bit was going to be whenever you said interrogated? I was going to say try to top that. Yeah, I know that's tough. I was going to say that <laughs> Christian Bale slammed his head, slammed his head into the table, and and Harry Milling said, "Never start with the head. The victim gets all fuzzy." You know. Yes, and a, it's a wand poking out of his. Yes, Christian Bale's eye. Oh dear. <laughs> Why? What's poking at? Oh my! We need to stop. We need because to stop. Henry Melling was a wizard. No, he wasn't. He was the fat kid. Oh, I thought he was like, you know, the one in the final movie, Neville who, like, Longbottom, take, who stands. Yeah, that one. I thought he was. Wow, that one. you need to brush yeah. up on your Harry Potter, Kirk. That's like those two characters aren't even close. Don't ever release not this episode even close. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, now I don't want to be m murdered by the Harry Potter fans. Now we have to. Now we have to get into the review. Okay. Oh we're, yeah. We're just gonna do it. Sounds good. <sighs> Energy reset. Energy reset. Okay. <laughs> and let's get into and the Oscar goes to which goes to the best actor in the film. Um, I mean, obviously the two the two marquee names here are. Christian Bale and Harry Melling. They are star in the movie for the majority of the film. There's also Lucy Boynton who was famous in uh, seeing street as well as, Oh, what was the big Oscar nominated movie that she was in? The, the Bohemian Rhapsody, Bohemian Rhapsody. She was in that film as well. Um, mm -hmm. So she's, she's a big star, but she's only, she's not in the whole thing, but 
let's talk about this cast. My Oscar is going to go to one of my favorite actors of all time, Mr. Christian Bale, who was flexing his American accent in this film, playing a police detective from uh, New York. He was, uh, you know, this is like turn of the century, 1800s. I mean, I guess not turn of the century, like 1830s. Um, so industrial revolution type era, I guess my history is really bad. Um, but you know, it's the 1830s. He's at West point. He's a detective. He also is a, uh, a widower and someone who is recovering from, um, significant trauma, which is that his daughter is missing. We come to find out that she actually, uh, passed away due to suicide after, um, some horrible traumatic events happened to her as well. So he's a very, layered um, <clears throat> character with an interesting moral code and an interesting code of ethics. And I love the way that Christian Bale's character um, kind of unraveled in this film. He has a really good arc. Um, the one thing that, that hurts it a little bit is that the movie is a bit longer than it needs to be. So when his arc finally does get wrapped up at the end, it's like you're kind of waning in terms of how much, you care at this point, but it does have an interesting end to it. And he does a really good job of, of as Christian Bale always does. He's, he's so fantastic. He, he does a great job of really just playing the cards that he needs to play and nothing more with his performance. He's not going to give you more information than you need. This is a murder mystery. So of course he has to be um, as one of the primary people in this, he can't reveal everything that he knows. He can't reveal his role in this whole thing. And so he has to play his cards pretty close to the vest. And he, uh, you know, shows outbursts of emotion at times that feel out of place. But then when you realize why it matters to him, why this case matters, why these people matter and his ties to all of it, it all clicks together. So I think when that happens, you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. There, I thought those were some like uncharacteristically strange outbursts and things that he was doing. But now that I know it makes more sense. So that's what I'm talking about. He he's trusting the audience with his performance. And I think it pays off in the long haul for his character, Augustus Landor. So he's my pick for, and the Oscar goes to Kirk. Well, I will give my Oscar to Mr. Harry Melling because this young chap who's probably about, you know, our age and, my age in his thir- mid thirties, early thirties, he is playing Mr. Edgar Allan Poe. Quite a task. Um, I've seen some other reviews online uh, uh, critiquing his performance, saying like, "I don't think Edgar Allan Poe would have been so lively." Well, you don't know, sir or madam, who wrote that review. I like to think that uh, since this is historical fiction, Harry Melling took a very interpretive. Uh, idea of this and we see him change as he goes through he has all of this passion for writing and all of this uh this pent-up energy he's youthful he's at west point academy and he's interpretive lively mysterious and he he plays each of those so well uh there are some little things that i love that he does which is so silly but when he takes a breath his cheeks just puff out um 
I don't remember the last time I took a really deep breath and my cheeks just puffed out. That's to express express that he is a youthful person at this point. Um, I just loved all of the different ways that he took us, all of the the different paths that that he he led us on, uh, thinking that he was potentially uh, a suspect, uh, potentially. Um, you know, someone who who could have been more involved with these murders because of his dark disposition uh, and his dark view of the world and in his own writings. Um, I love that he was given a ro- a romantic interest, uh, which didn't turn out so well for him. But I love that they they explored that that what that would look like. I always imagine Edgar Allan Poe just sitting in a very dark room at a very decrepit table, and we got to see this person really living life um, in, in the midst of all these different um, heightened circumstances. So it was very, very um, exciting to see this role play out with Harry Melly. Yeah, I like that take. I think that that is the thing. If people truly are, as you said, kind of like criticizing him being so lively and enthusiastic about life and things like that with it being like after his mother's death and yada, yada, yada. Like he is young. He's, he's, you know, this is a chapter of Edgar Allan's Poe, Edgar Allan Poe's life that we, you know, probably don't really know that much about because it's about when he was at West Point Academy, he's not remembered for being a a famous military man, a, a, a military cadet and marksman. He's known for being a poet. So he did a lot of that in the later years of his life and I thought that yeah there's plenty of room for interpretation with this role I would think sure there's tons of people who know a lot about Edgar Allan Poe and that adds to the difficulty of it but um you know I thought his interpretation made sense and that's why he's getting my scene stealer for this movie I really liked Harry Melling's performance I don't have a ton to add over over what Kirk provided other than um the scenes where Christian Bale and Harry Melling are are the two focal points um, of which there are many and are just having, you know, dialogue where they're trying to figure things out or, or conversing with each other are the most electric scenes in an otherwise pretty boring film. Um, and it's, it's must watch every single time that they are sharing the screen and, and kind of like um, delivering jabs because it's just two actors doing a really great job at a really high level. And Harry Melling is turning in a lot of really good performances these days. If you watch the Queen's Gambit, I thought he was excellent in that show. And he's got a couple of recent credits where he's, he's done excellent work. So we, we certainly haven't heard, heard the last of him um, in this film. And so I thought it was a, I thought he made some bold acting choices, which I like. I'll always, I'll always reward boldness if it's um, called for, if it's an area where you can take some risks. And I think he did. Um, I thought most of them paid off and um, yeah, I, I thought that he, he carved out a really interesting character out of a real live historical fiction uh, figure and uh, turned it into something that you felt compelled to watch whenever he was sharing the screen. So uh, well done, Harry Milling. You're exactly right. When him and Christian Bale are on the screen together, you can't look away, which is why my scene stealer goes back to Christian Bale. Um, Obviously, the man is is just a champion in acting, but I I just felt that in my viewing, uh, Harry, for those bold choices, that's what really wins it over for me. Christian Bale, he wasn't stepping back in any way, shape, or form. He didn't uh, not put in 110% like he always does. It's just that the writing of his particular character 
really didn't lend itself. He was trying to kind of just hide in the shadows a little bit as revealed by the ending twist. Um, and there's a couple of uh, excellent excellent shots of mise-en-scene of high angle, low angle, uh, specifically of Christian Bale that tell that story. But in regards to his performance, I really just, uh, I really enjoyed it. I really thought that maybe one day this could actually be a, a stage play. Um, I know there's some some different things that would have to take place as far as the the gruesome side of these, but I feel like that's that's possible. Um, seeing seeing Harry and uh, Christian go at it, it really lended itself to a true character study with a lot of superfluous characters on, on the side here that maybe we could have cut down one, two, maybe even three of them uh, because uh, I just wasn't feeling the supporting cast, um, not to their really to their own performance uh you know shortages or shortcomings but really more so upon the, on the writing and the support of the script so christian bale you came for it you did well it's just that uh, you weren't front and center this time which is okay yeah i feel that um yeah the the other characters don't really get a chance to shine like i was so excited when lucy boynton popped up on the screen because i i you know what she can do at the top of her game is exceptional she's such such an expressive actor and uh she delivers emotion in a such an electric way just really i don't know she was so great in sing street i I love that role and that character uh so i was bummed that she didn't get proper time to shine in this film as many people also didn't like jillian anderson's in this movie and um, there's a few other cast members that you'll certainly recognize along the way uh let's talk about the production of this film and, uh, you know, the story and, and, and the more technical side of the movie to talk about our showstopper and director shoes. We'll start with showstopper, which is the thing that excited us or got us the most amped for this movie, the thing that we thought was its uh, calling card or its best piece. For me, I'm going, uh, surprisingly, something I rarely, rarely, rarely choose, uh, which is costume design. I thought the costume design was really good in this movie. I loved the way the West Point cadets... Um, and officers uniforms looked I think a lot of times when you get like you know uh, pre-civil war did I say that this was post-civil war earlier industrial revolution wow what an idiot I meant post-revolutionary war but when you get like civil war era or pre-civil war era costume design there's a tendency to go really bleak and that was certainly an option here because the whole production design is New York in the winter so you're outside a lot it's 1830 or like the it's the 1830s. So it's, uh, you know, we don't have a ton of like electricity going on. It's a lot of like lamps and lanterns and things like that. So it already tends to, to uh, skew bleak in the first place. So if they would have gone like with a really muted blue or, um, you know, for some of the dresses that the female characters wear, if they had been, been really like, neutral colors I think it would have hurt the film but I love the way that the colors worked in conjunction with the production design because I think the production design was accurate and spot on it should be bleak it should be it should feel like a Robert Frost or an Edgar Allan Poe poem in in a sense of um, it's cold it's New England it's the 1800s whatever like it should feel that way but that doesn't mean that there's that it's void of color that doesn't mean that it's void of life um, you know, these cadets are in the prime of their life, so they should be wearing bright blue. They should, you know, have a, have a plume on their hat. And I think that these are historically accurate costumes by, based on what I was looking up. So 
I loved that. I think they could have gone lazy there, and I'm glad that they didn't because I think that it made a lot of shots that could have been boring um, really beautiful, and uh, it, it really helped tell the story visually. Um, so I liked that. I liked the production design, but I thought the, I thought the costume design was even more crucial, and I loved Christian Bale's character's costume design, the hat that he wore, all the way down to the choices they made with his aesthetic, with his beard, the cloaks that he wears. Um, it, it all, it all worked really well for the characters and made the characters more intriguing. So, uh, shout out to the costume design team. I thought that was really well done. Beautiful, beautiful choice. My showstopper today goes to the screenplay lyricism. Um, this film felt like you were just wrapped in a poem in a good way. Uh, I, I felt at times where, um, characters were speaking and I didn't even need to know the facts of what they were saying. I didn't need to process all the information though. I was trying to keep up because what they were doing was playing with the sound and the rhythm and the meter uh, of how they were speaking. So to speak to the meter, uh, lots of people will uh, say, Oh, I don't, I don't know how to listen to Shakespeare. I don't know how to watch Shakespeare. I don't understand Shakespeare or anything of heightened uh, elegance of speech. This whole movie has a heightened tone of speech. The meter is at the rate of which uh, you are following the rhythm of, uh, of this, of the character's pattern. So each of them has a different one, but they all have a cohesive one. And the way that they would dynamically speak, you didn't always necessarily need to know every single word, every single fact. It, and which is fascinating because it's a murder mystery. <laughs> so you would think like you're, you're, you're just, closing in like I need to know every word they say so I can see if I can solve the murder before the main character and that's what's so great about it is because you would lose information but you would still feel like you were connected and still on the ride and in the right place that lyricism also came out uh, there's an incredible line where the academy the top tier academy members are are getting insanely mad at landor's lack of progress and his landor has incredible patience in finding what this uh, who the murderer is and the academy is getting fed up with it and he he just kind of disses them and they, they take that so personally and, and there's like this relation of the academy and the deaths of these of these uh, students really is what they are of these cadets and the uh, this this relation to criticizing him about uh, do you care as much about them as Jesus Christ would the the sinners of the world and I I can't uh, I can't remember it verbatim but it's uh, it's written so beautifully that it, that the the message of it stuck with me so well and uh, also just the um, the the way that that Poe like courts Lucy Boynton's character, the way he's speaking to her, he says one poem to her, but after that, he's really just speaking romantically to her. And again, it just feels like you are wrapped in a poem this entire movie, but you understand it all. And when you don't understand it, you feel like you understand it. So kudos to the writing of this. Kudos to the original source material. I don't know how much of that was the original author, uh, which is. Um, I uh, can't remember who that was, but or if it was Scott Cooper who adapted the screenplay into this film, but that really stuck with me. Yeah, so Scott Cooper did adapt it for the screen. The um, the film was, or sorry, the novel was written by Lewis Bayard. I there don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, but yeah, very popular book. So this was the first I had heard of it. I'm, I, I don't read a lot of historical fiction typically or, or really 
you know, I, I don't read a ton of books in general. I read some. Um, so this was, uh, this was all newfound territory for me, but I, I like those notes. Those are, that was well said, Kirk. Very well said. Thanks. Um, director shoes. I think there's a couple of places I want to go here. There's really two main things I want to focus on. First is sort of like the chronology of this whole thing, the sequence of events that happens. I think it's bizarre. I think that, um, sometimes scenes are edited together. Strangely, you get these really hard cuts and then you're transitioned into a totally other scene and you're like, wait, where are we? How did we get here? Why are we here? And I think the reason that we're there is because chronologically that's the bit of information that we need next. Uh, or, or that's like technically where it happens within the timeline of the story. But I felt like, if it doesn't make sense to have that scene there because of the flavor of the scene and the tone and where you're kind of going with that point in the story, don't put it there. Like get, get creative with it. Either find a different way to deliver the information or use a flashback later. Um, you know, there, there are options, there are options. And I felt like sometimes, um, you know, not being familiar with the source material, I can't say for sure that they were being rigid to the initial story. Um, but based on the way that it was edited together and the, these like hard cuts and abrupt whiplash like scene changes at times, I'd have to imagine that that is the the reason for it. It's like, oh wait, but we have to do this setup. You know, we can't we can't go forward without having this bit of information. It's like, okay, well let's think creatively about that. Are there actually ways that we could get there without this? Could we reveal it later without misleading the viewer or you know whatever? You, it's you're adapting it to film, make it work for film. Um, Books can flow differently and uh, they can flow chronologically a lot easier than a movie sometimes because things have to, you have to keep a steady, you know, meter is a good word for it, honestly. You have to keep a steady feel, momentum, pace to the film. Um, the other big critique I have of this movie is just that it, it really fails to make itself interesting, uh, sadly. It's it's really a snore. It's, it's, it's a bore. And it shouldn't be. It's a murder mystery. And the mystery itself actually has huge potential for being very interesting. And the left hook they hit you with at the end is interesting. But by that point, you've stopped caring. And that is the problem. Is that, like, when the left hook comes, I was like, oh, now we have some intrigue. Like, you could have seen it coming, so it, it makes sense um, when it happens, and you're intrigued for a little bit, but you've already lost interest because the central investigation, Augustus Landor's investigation, really fails to be interesting throughout. They kind of give you, in my opinion, too much information to where you kind of know, like, okay, the suspect is one of these, one or all of these people, right? And it is, and so you're like, okay, um, saw that coming. Like we learn about the whole like satanic basis for a lot of what's going on early in the movie. So you do get a few revelations along the way, but they're just not interesting enough and they don't throw you down enough of a spirally path to where you're kept guessing, which is where you need to be kept in a murder mystery. You need to be kept on the edge. And this movie doesn't deliver that. You're kind of like, okay, well they said they saw a woman there's only one female character that we really know that this could possibly be. And then there's this dude and, and his buddies like, yeah, they're involved in this. Okay. So now we know who our suspects are. It's just like waiting, 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 talking, talking, talking until we can finally get there. And, 
Um, there's a little bit too much tell, don't show going on here. When there should be, it should be show, don't tell. Um, and and it's just it just ends up being boring. It really does. It just ends up being boring. I I could have fallen asleep. I watched this on a plane and actually did fall asleep. And mostly because I was tired, but also because I was bored. And so then I had to finish this in a separate sitting, which isn't, it's not always a bad sign, but it's not a great sign. When you got to the satanic ritual, uh, was anyone around you alarmed that uh, that's what you chose to watch? On the I, I did not get to the sa- satanic ritual on the plane. I, I finished that at home. So I was thankful that's for good. that though. Like one of the very first scenes of the movie is them like very gruesomely opening this dude's chest cavity, <laughs> his yes. like heartless chest cavity. And I was like, oh, that's nice. The lady next to me was like, clearly like, dude, what is happening? So I had to like, <laughs> kind of like awkwardly turn my screen. It was not good. It was not good. I am forever on guard with my iPad watching movies that I don't, I've never seen before. Yes, yes. I always have a hand ready to tilt that thing out of the way if something obscene comes up. I know. So, man, that is that is something else. That would be a, a really fun uh, just pick of movies not to watch on a plane. Oh, yeah, yeah, no kidding. This this one is, if you're going on a plane, I would, I would look at other options, maybe PG-13 options. Yes. Yes, definitely. My director's shoes. I agree. There's lack of momentum. We get some, uh, a lot of things to follow in the, in the words and the words are beautiful and the words are fun to listen to, but the momentum, the pace, the stakes of this film just kind of fizzle out. Um, it's almost like we get too much information right out the gate and we're just like, okay, we have Christian Bale. He's a detective. He was walking in the woods. He has been summoned because of his occupation to solve a murder mystery. And that's it. That's all you get. That's not a lot to really uh, capture you, even though we sprinkle in, here's here's his backstory, here's his backstory. So I think the ultim- one of the biggest fails of this is that we don't get a true introduction to Christian Bale's character, and therefore we don't care enough about him and his arc to find out that at the end, spoiler alert, he is, he is the killer um, righteously uh, in a, in a way because um, of the, of the terrible crime that happens to his daughter, uh, the terrible rape that happens to, to his daughter. And, and he's going on a vengeance spree, taking these guys off one by one, which go for it. But had we had a little more uh, connection to him, even sprinkled with more of those uh, those mysterious flashbacks to his life prior to that, I feel like that would have connected us more. Shave off a little a little bit of the um, the overindulgence of the the lyricism of the the and the rhythms of the conversations that go on, especially with Lucy, Lucy Boynton because her character just gets kind of written off in, into oblivion. Uh, the, the as soon as you start to really build momentum with her character we kill her off in the fire at the satanic ritual. And let's talk about the insane satanic ritual that we've already mentioned. It comes really out of nowhere. We know that they are, there are that they exist in this story, in this realm that there are um, leads to this breadcrumbs to this. And all of a sudden uh, Harry Melling is knocked out and, and on a, on a, chase lounge and he's about to get his heart carved out it happens all of a sudden much like you said camps all of a sudden in some 
in some paces and places of this film, we're suddenly somewhere else that we weren't one second ago. And it's like, whoa, 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 how did we get here? What's the reason uh, from going here from the last scene? So those transitions are kind of too harsh uh, that we can't really catch our catch ourselves or understand where we're at in this world. Um, so all of that, um, you know, uh, it seems like the twist is good, but it seems forced because we don't know enough about Landor to care and no momentum. The stakes aren't there. Unfortunately, those are my director's shoes. Yep. I agree with a lot of that. I agree with a lot of that. All right, let's wrap this film up and score it. Final thoughts and scores on the pale blue eye. I will kick us off. Um, my thoughts are, I just think that this, this movie sort of reeks of a situation in which a director reads a book, loves it, falls in love with it, and then is like, oh my gosh, I have to adapt the film. I have to write and adapt the screenplay. And they're like too much in love with the source material that they think that it stands on its own and that there's almost nothing that they have to do to it in order to make it go except for to you know, bring their imagination to life and to bring the the, art, the writer's vision to life. But there was a lot that needed to be done to make this adaptation clean, and I felt like it wasn't a clean adaptation. I think that when you adapt a book to film, it's not easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy, and I'm sure that Scott Cooper didn't view it as being easy, but I think there were a lot of considerations that were missed here, and this felt much more poorly paced than it should have been. It felt like just overall the director thought this movie was a lot more interesting than it was. Um, so that hurts it badly because then it's like these things that, that should be, you know, that, that should be short scenes to Kirk's point get like exacerbated into these big, long melodramatic dialogues that, um, you know, while thoughtfully written, I suppose, really just take the wind out of the sails and, and, and kill the momentum and kill the flow of the movie. So I feel like that is the, the central mistake. Unfortunately, it's a huge one, you know? Like, it's it's a big mistake. It, it's a critical error. It's one that really hurts the effect of the movie, which you just hate to see. Um, I think Scott Cooper is a capable director. I think there's some great actors here doing great work, uh, particularly Christian Bale and Harry Melling. I think there, there's a lot of fun stuff going on there, but the movie itself is a bore and it, it fails to make itself interesting. It's uh, it's well shot. I, like I said earlier, I like the production design. I like the uh, costume design. I thought it was effectively done from a visual perspective, but the story suffers and, and uh, the pacing suffers a lot. So I'm actually giving this a 4.6 out of 10 kernels and, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit let down. I didn't have high expectations, but usually Christian Bale movie, um, I'm I'm really excited about, and this one could have been good. I really do believe that. Well, 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 we've come to the end, ladies and gentlemen, of the pale blue eye. I just wanted to read that like a radio play, real quick. Cam, hope you're okay with it. Yeah, that. of course, anytime. <laughs> okay, perfect. I return. The pale blue eye, a murder mystery that's not so mysterious but also not so murdery. I think that this film, quite frankly, loses its momentum 
before it ever gets built up? And can you really look into the eye of any of the dead men that they pull out of that little bathtub trying to preserve it so they can look at evidence? Can you really look them in the eye and understand who the murderer is? Are we the murderer? Is Christian Bale the murderer? Is Scott what Cooper is the director ha- what the is murderer? right now? I am so confused. Listen, listen, I'm almost there. Hang on, hang on. The point is there is no point, is that there is no meaning. There is no matter other than life itself. And we must cling to that very idea to lift each other up and to find the pale blue eye. Now streaming on Netflix, my score... Because of all of these things and more, 5.6 out of 10 kernels. Well done. Thank you, Keith Morrison. Your words are a treasure to us all. <laughs> I just wanted to hit you with a little bit of uh, poetry. <laughs> a little bit of Dateline, Dateline podcast style. Yeah. Uh, I can appreciate that. All right, Kirk. That's our review of The Pale Blue Eye. If you guys have not seen the movie on Netflix, now you know every single thing that happens. Well, not really, kind of. Um, you know the big things. Uh and if you have seen it, let us know your thoughts. I want to know your thoughts on uh, our thoughts, you know, our review. Do you agree with it? Do you disagree with it? Did you like the movie? Did you not? I've talked to a few people who really, really did enjoy this movie. So those were interesting conversations. And not in a bad way. That's good. Don't laugh, Kirk. They can have different <laughs> I'm opinions. Sorry. I encourage I'm sorry. it. But, um, yeah, I want to hear your thoughts. If you, you really disliked it or, or really loved it, we want to know. Except for apparently Kirk. He's going to laugh at you. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. I, I don't know. I don't think I can be trusted this evening. I am a little bit unhinged. Yeah. Well, it's it getting, this far it's getting the episode. late. And on that topic, the perfect time to turn the mic over to you as unhinged as you are to take me through, I believe, a game. Is that right, Kirk? It is a quick game. Yes, this game is called The Saturated Yellow Eye. Oh, Yellow Eye? That's right. That's right. Let me explain. The movie that we reviewed, The Pale Blue Eye, the opposite of pale, saturated. The opposite of. I say it is, Cam. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm questioning that. Sit down, sir. The opposite of blue on the color wheel is yellow, and the opposite of one eye is another eye. So I uh, didn't have much creative freedom there. <laughs> so the saturated yellow eye. We're talking opposites, Cam. I'm going to give you okay. a character, an actor rather, that was in this film. I'm going to give you a film title that they were in. It was not the pale blue eye. And you need to tell me their counterpart, their opposite acting partner in that film, just for funsies. Are okay. you ready? Sure. The first one. Mr. Christian Bale. The film is The Fighter. Can you tell me, through your saturated yellow eye, yeah. who the opposite he played? Uh, Marky Mark. Mark Wahlberg. That is correct. Nailed it. I love that movie. It's so good. I watched that way too late in life. Oh, and, dude. Uh, it's, it's great. Man, so good. Next up. His name is Harry Melling, but for some reason I wrote down Henry Melling when I took down my notes. I have also at multiple times thought his name was Henry Melling and have actually Googled Henry Melling previously. I don't know why that is the case. I think there's an opportunity for him to change his name just because of us. So there's that. He was in another Netflix film called The Old Guard. He played a villain. Oh, yeah. 
with lots of money in the old guard. And the opposite of him would have been the hero of the story, which was... Uh, Charlize Theron. That is correct. The... What, what would you call him? The constable in this? The, the constable's responsible. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Uh, the superintendent, Mr. Timothy Spall, also from the Harry Potter series, um, he was in Sweeney Todd. And we all know who the big, big money, big bucks was in Sweeney Todd. That was? Johnny Depp. That is correct. Shout out to Timothy Spall because... Uh, for forever they've been like hey play the ugly dude in this movie like the most repugnant characters you could ever imagine like even yeah. they've made whole movies where the plot of the movie is how ugly he is um <laughs> what was that yes. movie called mr something he was a painter and they mr. were like mr ugly pants it should have been called mr ugly pants it was <laughs> it was called uh mr turner that's what it was called uh <laughs> i'm just remembering that now but because i remember the trailer then being like mr turner something blah 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 about his art being beautiful but he was ugly in this film you almost couldn't recognize him and your first thought wasn't my gosh <laughs> look how ugly that dude was it was it was listen to that guy's voice that's awesome yeah, I think maybe Hulu, they're really good at romantic comedies right now. That's kind of their wheelhouse. Uh, I think they should come up with something where he is like the actual romantic lead and falls yes. in love with someone. I think that that's something that should be made, Mr. Timothy Spall. He falls in love with someone who's uglier than him. Ooh. How about that? Who is uglier than him? I don't, we will have to think about that. Know. Is he even ugly or does he just play ugly people? I don't know. These are the questions that I have. He's got a lot of points on his face, like very, you know, his chin, his nose, his He's cheeks. He's certainly a recognizable guy. Yes, yes. My next one. Looking through your saturated yellow eye cam, tell me, Lucy Boynton, you ready? Yes. Sing Street, her debut, her claim to fame. Uh-huh. Who does she play opposite? What is that actor's oh, name, Cam, who plays Connor? No idea. If you're out there right now and you know the name of this actor, I just want to shake your hand. You just tell me if you knew this before I reveal and who I've, it is. And I've watched this movie many times because I think it's great. And I think that he's great. And I've seen him in other things. And I have no idea. No idea. Yes. He's in, you know, the best picture winner, Coda. He's yes. in Sing Street. Uh, he's in a number of upcoming films that you're like, wow, that's exciting. But his name is something unexpected of uh -huh. a superstar celebrity. His name is Ferdia Walsh Pilo. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. <laughs> I got that wrong. Insane. Insane in the membrane. And I'll give you one last one to, uh -huh. to leave us on here, Cam, before our, our listeners depart and go about their their mundane lives trying to uh, get before the I day. go back into cryo sleep before the next episode. That's what I, that's what happens to me. I don't exist oh. outside of this, uh, outside of the podcast. I'm just, a, uh, I don't know. Like I'm in the matrix is basically you were, what it. You were born specifically for this purpose. <laughs> that's right. It was created to in, be on this podcast. I'm an AI is what I am. <laughs> You're our own very chat, <laughs> our very own chat GPT. That's right. That's right. <laughs> go ahead. Yes. Next up, Robert Duvall, the movie. Ah, uh, Yes. Apocalypse Now. Yeah. I'll give I'll give you I'll take two different answers, but I'm looking for his opposite. 
is opposite in Apocalypse Now. Yes. And you would accept two? I would accept one of two. Or two of two, if you can name both of them. Um. Okay, who do I think of when I think of Apocalypse Now? I would say... Martin Sheen. That is correct. What would what would be the other one? Uh, the guy at the end. The guy they're going on the rescue mission for. The big guy. One might call him the Godfather. Oh, Brando. I, right. for, I, I forgot more than Brando was in that movie. It's brief. It's brief. And a strange scene. So. <laughs> True. True. Well done. I, I, I mean, I got it. I, I wouldn't have come up with Brando, though. I don't think so. No way. Oh, nice. So. The saturated yellow eye will return in the next episode. Oh, good. I'm I'm <laughs> so relieved to hear that, Kirk. That's that's excellent. It was a fun game. The title is disgusting, and I hate it. But yeah, um, <laughs> I do appreciate you coming up with the game and uh, humoring us all. Hopefully, you guys played along and got all those answers faster and more accurately than I did. Though I think I only missed one, um, and that was a doozy in half. But Sing Street is an excellent movie. You should watch it if you have not already. Um, But that is where we will leave you with our review of The Pale Blue Eye. We will be back next week. Stay tuned on social media to figure out what movie we will be reviewing. And if you're clamoring for more reviews, you can check out the 52-week movie challenge, which is something I'm doing on social media right now uh, where I review a movie a week from a specific category. It's a lot of fun. If you want to join in on it, you can find it on TikTok, Facebook, uh, Instagram, you know, all the things. And I said all the things. I don't even say that. And I hate oh. that phrase. That just makes me want to hurt myself. I never say that. Um, I only say it when I'm talking about social media. And ugh. anyway, um, <laughs> on that note, we will leave you there before I say <laughs> anything else that makes me question my identity. Um, and we'll also give a special thanks Time to our... Time to go back to the cryo <laughs> Back to cryo um, Special thanks to our executive producer, Ryan Spriggs, as well as the band Rhetoric, who created our original music. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you guys next week. Talk to you then.